Church, it is good to be back with you after two weeks in Uganda. I can tell you what a blessing to know that over 50 people gave their lives to Christ uh, through the preaching of God's Word. We celebrate that. We got to work with great pastors, and uh, there are many opportunities, I believe, that lie before us uh, in ministry after taking a trip like that. We, we were left with uh, the last day going to three leper colonies, and I thought I'd seen everything, and I thought... Uh, you know, it, I, don't know, I don't even know how to define it. Uh, it, it was life-changing. It was kind of uh, earth-shattering to spend time with a people when you kind of see exactly what the Bible meant, a people who are unloved, untouched, uh, outcasts in the society in which they live. Um, so many needs in a place that, that people like us could minister. People like us have the means to do so much in the lives of people like we met in these leper colonies. So I want you to pray. Uh, Megan and I talked last week about uh, just the fact that, that we pray that someone will kind of rise up as an advocate the way that she is and the ministries that she has in Uganda with the churches and the people that she works with, that maybe, just maybe, somebody will rise up as an advocate for these leper colonies. And so I pray that as we go back uh, into Uganda, that maybe the Lord will place on your heart to go with us to meet these people, to see these people, and to let God use you to help find a way to minister to the lives of these people that so desperately need it. It is tough to watch people die of diseases and die of things that we have the means to easily help them uh, survive some of these things that they're facing, but more than that, give us the chance to get in and share the good news of Christ. So be praying for the people of Uganda. I am so thankful that God brought Megan and Kevin back into this church uh, for this season because uh, that mission and that ministry, it touches hearts and lives. If you haven't been part, you need to get with Megan. Talk to her about Kwagala Missions. Find out how you can serve the people of Uganda because I saw the children, I saw the families and the faces of the people that you're ministering to through your giving, through your letters, through your support to these people. And I'm telling you, it's changing their lives. So you need to get with uh, Miss Megan and, and uh, Kevin if you have a desire to get involved in that ministry. We are in 2 Samuel this morning, chapter 19. And, and we're talking about just what we sang about a moment ago about the coming king. When we left these chapters uh, over the last few weeks, you remember that David had been in exile, that David was really seeing in his own life the things that God said were going to be coming. He is facing so much difficulty and so much trial and so much suffering in some ways because of the consequence of choices that he had made. God had forgiven him, and God said that he would be king and that he would be restored but you're seeing him walk through these very difficult times. And last week, he went through another difficulty that, that is heartbreaking. It wasn't the first son. It wasn't the second son. It wasn't the third son. This is the fourth son that he has lost in so few years of his life. This was a son that I really believe he thought would probably become king. And yet, here he is. He's dead. He usurped the throne. It wasn't like an invading army from outside came and killed the son of David, but it was David's own army that had taken his life. 
You can imagine how hard this was for David. And David has choices to make, decisions to make, because now that Absalom is dead, he's coming back to his people, and he has to decide how is he going to deal with the issues that are still going on in the land of Israel? How is the king going to respond to these people as they come to him, almost one by one, sometimes by tribes, sometimes individuals? You're going to come across names that we have been talking about over the last five weeks. They're going to come back to the king, and it's going to be a very interesting moment because what do you do with people who have betrayed you? What do you do with people who have cursed you? What do you do with people who have rejected you, who've said, I don't want you to be king, and now you're coming back into the land? I don't know about you, but I see myself in these stories. Because there was a moment that I had to come to grips with the fact that I had told Jesus for many years of my life, I don't need you. I don't want you. I'm satisfied being my own king. I'm satisfied living my life the way that I want to live my life. And yet there came a moment when I recognized that, you know what, I was following the wrong king. And I'm grateful for grace. And I'm grateful for mercy. And I'm grateful for second chances and third chances. And these are going to be pivotal moments in the life of David as he brings together the people of God after such a tragic circumstance. You see, the reality for David was he had won a great victory, but the battle continued, right? The reality is Andrew Bonner was right when he said, let us be watchful after the victory as before the battle. Now again, let me say that twice to you. Let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle, because the decisions that David's going to make in this chapter have so much to do with the future of Israel, the future of what kind of king he will be, the legacy that he will live, and whether or not he will be able to effectively bring together the tribes of Israel. If you begin with me in verse 1, we're going to see that David really didn't start well in this process of coming back to the throne of Israel, because the truth is, David is a broken man as he returns as king, and he was almost at the point where he turned a victory into defeat. There is that pivotal moment that after we win a victory, we can quickly turn it to defeat, depending on how we deal with that victory. And David has a horrible situation to face, a horrible circumstance that he has to deal with, and here it is. It says, Then it was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping. And he's mourning for Absalom. The victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard it, and they said that day, the king is grieved for his son. So the people went by stealth into the city that day, as people who are humiliated steal away when they flee from the battle. The king covered his face and cried out with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, my son, my son. It's easy to understand what happened to King David here. Folks, I want you to hear me say this, and I want you to hear me say this very clearly, that grief is a necessary aspect of our lives. That we're going to face tragedy where we lose someone or something that is so special to us. It means so much. We love 
And folks, I've, you've heard me say over and over and over before that grief is the price for love. That when we love and then we lose, grief is going to become part of the process. But the question enters in and has to enter into the discussion of how do we grieve in a way that honors God? How do we grieve in a way that, that provides for us the future and the hope and the promise that God intends for us to live in our lives because tragedy is going to be part of our life and how we respond to tragedy, tragic situations, tragic deaths. Tragic losses come in so many ways. And we have to figure out how we're going to deal with them because in this moment in David's life, the mourning that he was facing over the loss of his son almost took away the victory that God had given the people of Israel and turned it into a defeat. This military victory almost became an emotional defeat. The pride that the people had was almost turned into shame. The heroes of that moment and that day that had sacrificed and given so much to be sure that King David was returned to the throne, that this tragic situation where his son usurped his throne, there were men that gave everything to fight the battle that had just been won. So let's talk about grief for a moment. When we face grief, uh, the best way that I know how to explain it to all of us this morning is that when we're overcome with tragedy and grief, or, or some sort of sorrow. The problem is not in what we know in that moment. I would say that the problem is in what we've forgotten in that moment. Now, let me say it to you in another way. I love the movie Courageous. If you haven't watched it, you need to go get it. It's about a story about a man and his family who were strong believers in Christ. They had a child that had passed away, and, and it was unexpected. It was due to a drunk driver, and in the storyline, you see this man who is just obviously grieving deeply for the loss of his daughter. And when he went to the preacher at the church, I'll never forget the words in that movie because they are so important to this process of grieving because the man said to his pastor, I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. I feel like I'm in this black hole that I cannot get out of. And I don't know what to do. I need you to tell me what to do. And the pastor said something very interesting. He said to that man, you have to make a decision in your life. These are hard words, what I'm about to say. Whether you will be thankful for the years that God had given you your daughter. Or whether you'll live in misery because of the years that you didn't have. You see, most of our life is about perspective, isn't it? It's learning how to deal with the situation that we have found ourselves in, trying to find the truth, trying to find the right perspective. And it's not what we know that gets us in trouble. It's usually what we forget. Because in this moment, I want you to forget that God was moving, or I don't want you to forget that God was moving in the life of King David, that God had already stated what would occur, that God, this was part of his plan. This was part of his purposes. That's not to say that it doesn't cause us grief. But the Bible says that we cannot grieve in our lives as those who have no what? As those who have no hope. Now, obviously, when that was spoken by the Apostle Paul, 
He was thinking about the fact that, you know, those of us who have family members that go before us in death, but we know that they are in the hands of Jesus. We know that they are believers in Jesus Christ. He's saying that, you know what, we have to grieve with the understanding that, you know what, there is hope. There is life after the grave. There is forgiveness of sin. There is a freedom that we have in Christ that when we close our eyes in this life, we open our eyes in another. And he said, listen, the grief is unbearable if we forget that this isn't all that there is. Now, you see, the way that this works out in most of our families and our lives is this, that if we're not careful, the grief that we are living out, it becomes so overwhelming that we forget who we are and the plans and the purposes that God has for our lives. David was a father and he grieved as a father, but what else was he? He was also a king. He had to recognize that, you know what, no one wanted things to end the way that they ended. Those choices were Absalom's choices. Those choices were King David's choices. But the reality is sometimes we're going to face tragic situations in life and we have to come to grips with how we face those tragedies because the reality is, you know what, we're not single-faceted in our life. We are multifaceted. Listen, we are parents to children. If we let the circumstances of our life so drive us that we cannot function, then we forget, you know what? I'm leading a spouse. I'm leading other children. That I have other lives that are depending on me and I can't let my grief get to the point. It's not that we're asking not to grieve, but that grief doesn't get to the point that, you know what? Everything else is hindered because of our grief. And that's what was happening to King David. Literally, King David was mourning in such a way, think about it, that the men who gave everything to save the kingdom, they now felt like criminals. Joab's going to say it very pointed here in a moment. And David didn't do it on purpose. David didn't mean for it to happen that way, but David was grieving in a way that, you know what, he grieved as a father, but he forgot that he was a king. And these men needed him. These women needed him to lead. Normally, when a victory was won like this, there would have been great celebration. There would have been great fanfare in the sense that, you know what, the throne was protected. The throne was given back to the rightful king that God had won a victory that day. And yet no one dared celebrate. In fact, I said that they felt shameful. I like what Wearsby said. He said, our goal is not to shelter people from the pain of bereavement. Our goal is not to help them escape. Rather, our task is to help them draw upon the divine resources that God provides for us so that we can accept the situation maturely, so that we can use it creatively, and we can finally emerge at the end of the valley better people than when we went into the valley. You see, ultimately, that's what God is trying to do in every circumstance of our life. I praise God that I can say with a straight face to all of you and mean it with all of my heart that you know what? God doesn't waste a moment of our life. Do you still believe that He can bring beauty from ashes? That even out of death, you know what He can bring? Life. 
that there's nothing so broken that he can't heal. And no matter how hopeless a situation seems to us, the reality is God says there can be hope. And folks, we have to cling to what we know is true in those moments. For Melanie and I, one of the hardest things that we ever faced was the loss of two pregnancies very late in pregnancy. All I could focus on was what I knew at the moment. This seems unfair. God, why would you do this to us? Did we do something wrong? Do you see us? Have you forgotten? I mean, listen, if you don't think pastors go through the same range of emotions that all of you go through, And the only way that we were able to get through the circumstance that we were facing was to go back and remember what it was that we had forgotten. And you know what that truth was? That from the beginning, Melanie and I aren't the givers of life. God gives life. We had to go back and remember because I had already bought Melanie a thing that we had put on the wall from from, uh, 1 Samuel Where Samuel's mother, remember when he was born, remember what she said? She said, if you give me this child, what was she going to do? Give him back to you. We had already bought, I, I had just two weeks before bought that for Melanie. And the question now became, do I believe I just hung on my wall? Because here is the truth that I had to cling to. And and this is a miracle in itself. If you would have ever told me that the Wallaces could have two perfect boys, I would have said there's no way. But you know what the truth is? Those children are in the arms of Jesus. And the only way that I was able to walk through, and Melanie and I were able to walk through this together, was the hope and the knowledge and the truth that, you know what? Those children open their eyes, not in this world, but in that world. Not in this world where they can't see Jesus face to face, but literally in that moment that they were given life, they saw Jesus. They were where I have always wanted to be. We had to wrap our head around the truth that, you know what? These children are not lost forever. I'm going to see my boys one day. Folks, we're... Without that kind of hope, without remembering the truth, without clinging to our faith, we're going to find ourselves in this position where God is trying to give us life and victory, and He's taking us toward His purposes and His plans. Don't get derailed because God sees you, and He's in control, and He has His plans, and He has His purposes. And for me, I have two children that, you know what, they never had to know sin. They never had to know brokenness. They never had to know fear or shame or guilt or sorrow or pain, none of it. And in the end, you know what I was able to do? Say, thank you, Jesus. Because in the end, if I was true and honest, you know what? I'd rather my children go (laughs) from the womb to the arms of Jesus. Because guess how long I'm going to be with them? And guess how long I'm going to be with Jesus? Forever. Forever. It's perspective. 
Now, David was struggling with perspective. Folks, I'm not asking you to repress your emotions because there's a statement that you need to understand that emotions expressed, they become medicines that heal. There is a healthy way to grieve, and emotions repressed, they become like a poison that kill. The reality is every grieving parent at some point recognizes the truth that you never get over the death of someone that you love, but you do find a way to get through it. You've heard it said that time heals all wounds. That's not totally true. It depends on what you do with the time. Do you grow closer to God? Do you get in His Word? Do you surround yourself with people that will breathe hope into your life that there is still life ahead of you, life to be lived, purposes to be fulfilled, plans that God has given that he hasn't yet accomplished. So number one, turning victory into defeat if we're not careful. But number two, Joab is going to turn hurt into help. Now you say, that doesn't make sense. Hurt and help don't belong in the same sentence. I would beg to differ. If you look at the Word of God, there's a statement out of the book of Proverbs that is amazing to me. Proverbs 27 verse 6 says this, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Now let that sink in a second. Faithful. That means that a true friend is faithful sometimes when he wounds you. When he hurts you. And and I want you to understand the context of what is meant here because you're about to see it in Joab and what he does for David in this moment because Joab is sitting back and he's recognizing, David, you're about to lose the kingdom. The people haven't even received you yet as king. Your own army is sitting home in shame and guilt because they feel like somehow they did something wrong when all they did was the thing that God and you asked them to do. Joab says in verse 5, Then Joab came into the house of the king, and he said, Today, and, and listen to these words, Today, You have covered with shame the faces of all your servants who today have saved your life and the lives of your sons and the lives of your daughters, the lives of your wives, the lives of your concubines by loving those who hate you. And you see what he's saying there. He's saying, it seems to me and it seems to the people that you love Absalom more than these men who just risked their lives to save your entire family. In this throne, I mean, you see the truth of what he just said there. He said, by loving those who hate you and by hating those who love you. For you have shown today that princes and servants are nothing to you. For I know this day that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would have been pleased. Now, therefore, arise, go out, speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, that if you do not go out, surely not a man will pass the night with you, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Folks, that is an example of what Solomon meant when he said, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Folks, there are times in life that, and this is going to sound so backwards, but hear me, that we have to hurt people to help people. 
If you're a surgeon, what do you have to do? you got to hurt people to help people. Now, we have anesthesia, right? Which helps the process where we don't feel it as deeply. And I would say that biblically, that's when Jesus says that when you have to speak the truth to someone, what's the anesthetic? Holy Spirit, the love of God. I mean, the love that we show them. Because the Bible says that if you're going to speak the truth, if you're going to cut somebody with the truth because it's a double-edged sword that cuts down to the very soul of our being, right? When we preach the Word of God and that antiseptic... Listen, that is like when we love people. When we speak the truth in love, it's not bitterness, it's not resentment, it's not payback, it's not selfish, it's not any of those things. But when we love them and we care for them and our intention is for their good and we speak the truth in love, something amazing happens. We are hurting them in one way. But in the end, guess what we're really doing? We're helping. Cancer has to be cut out. And the reality is, without the anesthesia, it would hurt terribly. Without love, those wounds that we are making would be unbearable. But the reality is, Joab stood before David, and he gave David a wake-up call. I want you, I'm just going to paraphrase what he said. He basically said, David, your excessive mourning is selfish. It isn't all about you. These loyal sacrificial supporters of yours, they deserve to feel good about their victory and you are making them feel shameful and terrible. Snap out of it, David. That's what he said. Let me ask you a question. Do you love people enough to speak truth and love to them? One of the most tragic things that happens in churches, in my opinion, is the number of people who see people struggling, who see people in sin, who see people grieving without hope, who see people in whatever circumstance we can talk about and we can bring up, and the reality is we can walk by them over and over and over and over and over and never help them. And the reason we don't help them is because we say, you know what, I don't know if they'll accept the truth. Listen, if they don't accept the truth, they're going to die, right? If someone won't accept the truth that they have cancer, they're going to die. But I'm going to tell you what, they're going to die with me trying to save them. With me trying to love them enough to say, listen, you need treatment. You need help. You need surgery. And folks, there are times in people's lives that someone has to care enough, love them enough to say what is the difficult thing so that in the hurting that we bring by telling the truth, we can bring about healing in their life. Folks, Christianity, following Christ, being a disciple maker, being someone who's going to get in the ditches and in the mud with people whose lives are a wreck, there is no way for you to help them without saying difficult things. Listen, you ain't going to help your kids unless you're willing to say difficult things. Think about your small children. You inflict pain on them to keep them from a greater pain. So when they're about to stick their finger or a fork into a socket, what do you do? You stop them and you pop their hand and you make them cry. And I'm sure they look at you like, why do you hate me? But you're trying to teach them what? This slap on the hand is nothing compared to what's going to happen if you stick that fork in that socket. 
If you love people, you speak the truth to them, but you must speak the truth and love. And Joab gives us one of the greatest examples in all of the scripture about what this looks like. But Joab, he's not alone in this. He's not the first person. He's not the last person in the scripture to give us an example of what this looks like. It's Jesus standing before the rich young ruler who wants to know about eternal life. Jesus could have made it as easy as he wanted to for that man, but what did he say to that man? He knew that that man had a money issue, and he said the hard thing to that man, the thing that hurt him, the thing that made him walk away sad, but he loved him enough to say, you know what, if you want eternal life, take everything you've got, sell it to the poor, follow me. What Jesus was saying was, there's things in your life that are more important to you than God. And your God is money. And if you will put away that God and follow me, the Messiah, the one sent from God, then you can have life. Listen, what did that man do? It said that he loved money and he walked away how? Sad. Did Jesus run after him to make salvation any easier? To water down the gospel in any way so that he might accept it? No. Folks, over and over and over again in this life, we've got to be sure that we are willing to preach the truth to people in love so that they can find healing. Folks, if we as Christians are going to do our jobs, that means that we have to be the type of comforters that help people face grief honestly and courageously and help them use their painful experience of sorrow as a means for growth. Thirdly, not only does he nearly turn victory into defeat, Joab comes along and turns hurt into help. But the most important part of this text are the next two points where we find that David is going to come into his kingdom and he's going to turn his enemies into friends. Now see, most of us on our list of things we want to do today, it's usually not that we want to make our enemies our friends. But I want you to know it's what's important to God's heart. If you say, why is it so important for you personally? I would say this to you. Never forget that when Jesus Christ found you, you were an enemy. And he made you a friend. You belonged to another, but he adopted you into his family and he gave you life. Never forget that this story that we are about to read, it's you and it's me. If we know Christ, this is us. That when the king came back, I want you to know that we're going to read the names of people that they were probably shocked, they were probably scared, they were worried, they were terrified because King David was walking up in their presence again. What we're going to find in this text that's coming up is that there are several people. Number one, the tribes of Israel and Judah, they had forsaken the king. It wasn't just Absalom. Absalom was made king. Absalom was accepted as king. David was rejected as king. And then you've got men who are still alive, like Amasa, who we're going to read here in a minute. He was the commander of Absalom's army. He didn't die in battle. He has to face King, Jesus, or, or, or king David. There's a man named Shammai who you remember that when David was leaving in exile, he was a Benjamite. He was embittered over what happened to Saul and his family because he was a relative of Saul. And as 
David left Israel, I want you to remember, he was the one that was cussing at David. He was cursing David. He was the one that was throwing rocks at David. He was saying, you're a murderer. You're a worthless man. And remember, Abishai was like, you want to take this guy's head off? And what did David say? No, no, no. I don't know if God's speaking through him or not. And he showed mercy to him on that day. Well, now David isn't a king fleeing from an army. Now David is victorious and he's coming back to take his throne. And Shammai shows up again. Could you imagine that moment? Ziba is coming back. He meets David along with Shammai, along with all these other tribes of Israel. He's coming before David. Remember, Ziba was the one that lied to King David. He was the one that said, Mephibosheth, remember the son of Jonathan, who David greatly loved, who gave him a place at the table, who accepted him as a son. He literally ate from the king's table when David was leaving in exile. It was Ziba who came to David and said, you know what? I'm here to bear all these gifts to you and bring you all these things as you're traveling and facing this difficulty. And he says, where's Mephibosheth? He lied to King David. And he said, Mephibosheth's back at home because he's hoping that through this battle and through this war, he'll become king again. David's about to find out that was a lie. I want you to think with me for a moment. How do you turn enemies into friends? The next question ought to be, well, how did Jesus? He loved his enemies. One of those verses of Scripture that we do not want to face is where Jesus says, you know what? Anybody in the world can love those who love them. But you know the difference between a believer in Christ and the world? That a believer has the power because of a changed life and a transformed heart, a believer can actually love their enemy. They can bless those who are persecuting them. They can still pray for those people who spitefully use them. Do you see how you can overlay that directly onto this text of what David is about to do for these people? Let me read it to you. In verse 8, it says, So the king arose and he sat at the gate when all the people or when they told all the people, saying, Behold, the king is sitting at the gate. Then all the people came before the king. Now Israel had fled each to his tent. All the people were quarreling throughout the tribes of Israel, saying, The king king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. But now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. So half the people were saying, Hey, we need David as king. He's the one in the past that saved us from the Philistines, saved us from all of our enemies. And he was in exile. He's back. They're claiming he needs to come back and be king. And then there's the group that's saying, however, Absalom, whom we anointed, they recognize the problem. We forsook David. We anointed another king over us. But Absalom has died in battle. Now then, why are you silent about bringing the king back? Then King David said to Zadok and Abiathar the priest, saying, Speak to the elders of Judah, saying, Why are you the last to bring the king back to his house, since word of all of Israel has come to the king, even to his house? So David is is dealing with an issue. The ten tribes of Israel seem ready to come back to him and make him king. But Judah, that is his family. Those are his friends. 
They have yet to say that they want to bring David back to be king. Why? Because their betrayal probably hurt King David the most. Amasa, who was the king, I mean the, the commander over the army that would fight David, he was one of David's people. He was part of David's family. He was of the tribe of Judah. He sent the priest to go to them and say, why are you waiting to bring me back as king? He says in verse 12, you are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? Say to Amaza, and listen to what he does here. Say to Amaza, are you not my bone and my flesh? <coughs> May God do to me. And more also, if you will not be the commander of my army before me continually in place of Joab. Thus he turned the hearts of all the men of Judah as one man so that they sent word to the king saying, return you and all your servants. The king then returned and came as far as the Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal in order to meet the king, to bring the king across the Jordan. Now I want you to think about me with this. David, in an effort to make all of these enemies his friends, do you see what he did? He offered them pardon. Folks, the only way that you and I can be called friends of Jesus is because He offered us what? Pardon. And the only way that He could honestly offer us pardon was by dying on the cross for our sins. When we say that we have been pardoned from all of our sin, it is at the great cost of Jesus, that Jesus loved us. He wanted to restore us. When we talk about loving our enemy, how can anyone love an enemy greater than in the way that Jesus loved us while we were rejecting Him, while we were saying, you're not my king. You're not my Lord. I'm king. I'm Lord. I serve the world. I'll serve my friends. I'll serve anybody and everybody. But Jesus, I'm not going to serve you. That is where Jesus found every one of us. We had rejected him as king. And to think that he would come and not give us what we deserve. He could have and he probably should have rejected us. Put us at arm's length. We were no doubt untrustworthy. See, we want to look at somebody like Amasa, or we want to look at somebody like Shammai, who we're going to see in a minute, and we want to question their sincerity in this moment. But all I can tell you is that, you know what? When I came to Jesus, it was because I had this overwhelming understanding that, you know what? I had rejected Him, and now I've come to realize He is the true King. He is the rightful King. And I needed Him to do one thing for me, and that was forgive me and give me grace and give me mercy. Give me what I didn't deserve. That is the only reason that I can say that I'm a friend of Jesus and not an enemy any longer. It's because He offered pardon to me. And yes, I didn't deserve it. And no, you don't deserve it either. But that is the greatest love that has ever been demonstrated. And this is why we say that David has a heart after God's heart. Because he loved like God loved. Literally, I want you to think about what he did. He went to his own people and he said, listen, I'm going to go to whatever degree I've got to go to make this right. And he says to Amasa, the one who fought against him, the one who took the lives of some of his soldiers, he went to that man and he said to him, I'm not only going to forgive you, but I'm going to exalt you. 
Folks, there's not a person in this room that has been exalted because they deserve it. The only way that we are exalted is when we humble ourselves before the King. And we seek His forgiveness. And we seek His grace. And when we humble ourselves, He will exalt us. It's a beautiful story. And in that moment of grace and mercy towards the people of Judah and Amasa, it says that now suddenly the people that were divided are now like one heart. And they receive King David. What the story doesn't end there, it says then Shammai in verse 16, the son of Gera the Benjamite who was from Baharim, he hurried and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. Now this is a Benjamite, remember. This is King Saul's family, not King David's. It says there are a thousand men of Benjamin with him, with Ziba and the servant of the house of Saul, and 15 sons, 20 servants were with him, and they rushed to the Jordan before the king. Then they kept crossing the ford to bring over the king's household and do what was good in his sight. And Shammai the son of Gera fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. And he said to the king, listen to his words, Let not my lord consider me guilty, nor remember what your servant did wrong on that day when my lord the king came out of Jerusalem, so that the king would take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come today the first of all the house of Joseph, to go down to meet the Lord my king. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, said, Should not Shammai be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? Then David said, What have I to do with you, of son of Zariah? That you should this day be an adversary to me. Should any man be put to death in Israel today? For do I not know that I am king over Israel today? And the king said to Shammai, You shall not die. Thus the king swore to him. Folks, that's grace. Shammai did the only thing that he could do is that he confessed that he had wronged David. And he said, if anybody deserves to die, he knew that he deserved David's wrath, David's hatred. But when David came face to face with this man, he didn't react with anger. He didn't react with malice. I want you to see what he did. He reached out to Shammai with the two things that he needed, compassion and forgiveness. Folks, what a beautiful picture again of Christ. If you want the motivation to make right the relationships in your life that are wrong, look no further than what Jesus has done for you. It is amazing to me to consider what David did in this moment. Again, what are his friends saying? You know what? I'd just kill him. He betrayed you once. He'll betray you again. Folks, you don't think the devil's trying to say that to the Lord? You don't think that your actions have shown over time that you won't just betray him once, but you would betray him twice and you would betray him three times? And David looks at that man, and you know what ultimately he's saying? He ultimately says to Abishai, you know what? Why are you standing in the way of me doing what is right and what is good? You know what I believe David understood? Am I not Shammai?
Am I not the adulterer? Am I not the murderer? I believe in David's heart what he was saying was, am I not ultimately the cause of what all of us are struggling with right now? And for whatever reason, you know what David's thinking? He's saying, for whatever reason, I cried out in the same way that this man just did, and I said to God, what did David say to God? Forgive me, I've sinned against you and you alone. Have I sinned? And what did God do for David? He forgave him. Anyone could have looked at David just as much and said, you know what, that's probably not sincere. Was David any better? And David was overwhelmed that, you know what, on this day, it is not lost on me that God has given back to me the throne, and I don't deserve it. It's grace. It's mercy. It's, it's his love for me, his love that would do anything to reach me. And he's given me compassion and forgiveness. What else could he do in that moment on that day than to turn around and show it to a man like Shema? What are we supposed to do, church, when we get attacked? Are we supposed to get even? Are we supposed to go after our pound of flesh? When someone hurts us, we, we want to hit them back twice as hard. But is that what we're supposed to do? I want to say to you today that, you know what, if you were determined to look like Jesus, if you're determined to be like Jesus, if you want Him to do this great work in you, let me tell you what's going to have to happen. You're going to have to ask God to help you keep a heart that is tender and ready to forgive. You're going to have to develop some thick skin to deal with the hurts and the things that you're facing in ministry and in life because that's who we are in Christ. David looked at this day and he said, you know what, it's a day of rejoicing, it's a day of forgiveness. He perceived that it is a day of grace, not just in Shammai's life, but in his own life. He was returning to glory to reclaim his throne, and it was only being given to him because God loved him and forgave him, and he gave him grace and not what he deserved. Lastly, turning faithfulness into favor. Enemies into friends, and faithfulness into favor. As we begin finishing up this text, it says, The Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet king, and he had neither cared for his feet, trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came home in peace. It was when he came from Jerusalem to meet the king that the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, O oh, my lord, the king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go to the king because your servant is lame. Moreover, he has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. But my lord, the king is like an angel of God. Therefore, do what is good in your sight. For all my father's household was nothing but dead men before my lord, the king. Yet you set your servant among those who ate at your table. What right do I have yet that I should complain any more to the king? 
So the king said to him, Why do you still speak of your affairs? I've decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. Mephibosheth said to the king, Let him take it. Let him take it all, since my lord the king has come to safety in his own house. Did you know that God rewards the faithful? I don't know about you, I hope you're waiting for the king to return because the two men that we're going to talk about here, they were waiting for the king to return. I love the heart of Mephibosheth because literally it was obvious to the king and everybody else that this man had not bathed, this man had not changed his clothes, this man had not shaved his beard, this man had not even cared for the needs of his lame feet because he was so distraught over what was happening to King David. And at the end of the day, He stands before King David and he knows that he's been slandered. He knows that he's been lied against. And you know what he does? He does the only thing he can do. Lord, you know my heart. He says, you're like an angel of God. And you hear what he's saying? I trust your judgment on me. King David says, listen, we're going to settle this this way. You take half, you take half. And listen to his words to the king. I don't care about the land. I don't care about the things. I don't care about anything. You've already given me more than I deserved. You could have killed me. You could have destroyed my life. Instead, you made me like one of your own and you put me at the table. He says, I have nothing to complain about. And you know what? Let Ziba have it all. Because all that he wants is what? All he wants is the king. Now, folks, let that sink in. Is that your heart? When Jesus comes back one day, is that what he's going to find? That you're going to literally be able to say to him with a straight face, you know what? I don't care about anything that this world has to offer. I don't care anything about the things. I don't care anything about all this stuff that is around me. All I want is Jesus. Nothing more. Nothing less. What an amazing heart Mephibosheth has towards his king. And David finds him faithful, and he finds favor in the sight of the king. And it's not just him. Look at how the story finishes up in this chapter. A man who we've not met yet. This is the one that we haven't met. It says a wise man called from the city. All right, hold on, flip between pages. Now Brazile, the, Gil- the Giladite, had come down from Regalim, and he went to the Jordan with the king to escort him over the Jordan. It says, now this man, Barzillai, says he was very old, being 80 years old, and he had sustained the king while he had stayed at Menaheim, for he was a very great man. The king said to him, you cross over with me, and I will sustain you in Jerusalem with me. But he said to the king, how long have I yet to live that I should go up with the king of Jerusalem? I am 80 years old. Can I distinguish between good and bad? Can your servant taste what I eat and what I drink? Can I hear any more the voice of singing men or women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to the Lord my king? Your servant would merely cross over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king compensate 
compensate me with this reward. Please let your servant return that I might die in the home or the city near the grave of my father and my mother. However, here is your servant Chinnam. Now that's his son. Let him cross over with my lord the king and do for him what is good in your sight. And the king answered, Chinnam shall cross over with me and I will do for him what is good in your sight. And whatever you require of me, I will do for you. All we know about this man is it says that he was great. He was great in his character. He was great in his faithfulness to God. This was a man that had been given much. When it says that he was great, it actually is a reference. Some of your translations say that he was very wealthy, and indeed he was. And the things that he had, you know what he used for? He used them for the king and for his kingdom. When King David was in exile, when King David was running, when King David had nothing, what we find is it is this man who took of the possessions that he had, and he didn't hold them closed-fisted. You know what he did? He sacrificed and he gave of his wealth, of the things that he had been given. He was faithful to serve the king while he was in exile, while he was away. Just think about the the implications of that for us. The king is coming again, amen? The question is, what are we doing with what we've been given in this moment? Are we faithful to use all that we are and all that we have Because we know that one day, where's the king coming? He's coming back here again. Will we be found faithful? And what a selfless man, because he says, you know what? All the good things you're about to do for me. He says, listen, I'm an old man. I just want to go home and die in the place where I grew up. He said, but my son, will you take care of him? And David is going to faithfully do that all the way. Second King or first Kings chapter two, we're going to see that he will bless the sons of this man, which one of them was mentioned right here. Do you know and do you trust and do you believe that the God that we serve is a rewarder of those who are faithful? I hope that you do. I hope that you recognize that every sacrifice that you make, everything that you give for the kingdom of God, God sees, God knows. In the end, we're not going to give an account for our sins because they've been covered if we're in Christ. They've been forgiven. We've been set free. We won't give an account for our sins before God. But we will give an account for what we've done in this life. The time that He's given. The gifts that He's given. The resources that He's given. What have we done with what He's given to us? Are you making disciples? Because one day Jesus is going to ask you. You say, well, I don't have to make this. Yes, you do. That's the pastor's job. No, it's not. You'll give an account for your witness, for your discipleship, for whether or not you have joined Christ in His mission here and around the world. One day you will stand before God and He will want to know, have you been faithful? And if you have, let me tell you something. He says, favor is coming. He is a rewarder to those who have been faithful. So as the musicians come this morning, I want to ask you, church, have you let God speak to your heart this morning? Maybe you're finding yourself in grief and you need to know that you know what? There is a healthy way to grieve and there is an unhealthy way to grieve. Find your hope in Christ. Cling to His promises. Maybe you're sitting here today And you've got hard discussions that need to be had with people that you love.
It's hard to hurt someone with truth. But sometimes, listen, it's the only way that they will be saved is to hear the truth given to them in love. Maybe you're here today and you need to find a way to give grace and mercy and forgiveness because you've got folks that you're looking at in your life and you're saying they're enemies to me. Well, listen, it's the kindness of the Lord that drew us to Him. That's what we need to give others what we've received. And maybe today you've gotten very tired running this race and it seems like the king's never going to come back. Don't get distracted. Don't forget that you know what? He is coming. He will take His throne again. And I long, I live to just hear one thing. It really doesn't matter what all of you say to me. It doesn't matter what my mom says to me. It doesn't matter what my neighbors say. It doesn't matter what any other human says to me. At the end of the day, I just long to hear Jesus just say one thing. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Live faithfully because the King is coming. 